You're listening to the FinTech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. I'm Elliot Gotkin, and in this episode, how working with Jackie Chan, Pierce Brosnan and Netflix inspired Wayne Godfrey to found his film financing fintech, Purely Capital. I'm sitting there, we play the thing, and Guru just goes bonkers. He is flipping out, and he's like, yo, 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 Wayne G, Wayne G, I'm going to turn you into a hip-hop star. <laughs> Wayne, thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Elliot, thank you for having me. Uh, well, look, when people think of fintech, they think of the Revoluts or the Stripes of this world. Film financing doesn't usually feature. How does it work and what's novel and fintech-y about what you're doing at Purely Capital? We're in this incredible changing consumption world where the way we consume content is very different today than it was a few years ago, primarily via streaming content over your telly or, or laptop and probably subscribing to a Netflix, Amazon or Disney or Apple service. And the impact that has had on the industry is not only has it changed the way that we as consumers actually watch content, but how rights owners, producers and distributors are able to license that content. They're actually monetizing it really directly to these big media and tech companies and not via the traditional cinema, DVD, rental and all the other routes that we used to uh, touch and, and, and navigate towards content. And that has had an impact on cash flow. So whereas there were multiple revenue streams on an asset years ago, now you can find yourself with one income stream, a license from Netflix or Amazon. And these guys are paying typically over two to five years with long dated contracted income. And so Purely's core vision was to assist rights owners, distributors and producers with the acceleration of these long dated contracted entertainment receivables and help them streamline and crystallize that income so that they can put it into new productions or acquisitions and keep their businesses moving. And just to be clear, if it's a two to five year timeline now, uh, in the past, uh, people would just finish producing a film and then get paid for it uh, straight away? Absolutely. Yeah. Typically, we would um, be lucky to get, you know, typically money on delivery. So you spend maybe, you know, nine to 15 months making a film or TV asset and then on delivery, the license fees or the distribution rights would typically be paid for. Nowadays, the license fees can be spread over the length of the license, which changes the income profile of the asset. Okay, so so it's kind of factoring, but very specialist factoring. So you're not kind of competing with the market finance people uh, of this world. Where, where does the technology come in here? It's a good question. So yes, we, we sit ourselves in a factoring or supply chain financing kind of arena. But as you point out, the majority of the market focuses on short dated receivables, typically up to 120, 180 days. Our focus is really on 12 months onwards. So we really specialize in long dated income. And you're right, we focus on entertainment as our, as our specialty. The fintech angle comes in because we're dealing with a pretty standardized product. 
license agreements tend not to change. And whilst production finance or development finance around an asset can have many variables, many different components that require you know, real input and finessing in coming up with a legal structure and financing plan around it, receivable financing in this asset class is pretty consistent. So I had the idea to actually build some technology to assist global customers, rights owners, distributors, and producers with accessing finance that they may not be able to locally in a much more streamlined way. And instead of having to go through the traditional source of investment and financing around this, which can take many weeks and months and be pretty painful actually, we built a process that allows instant quotation in you know minutes and a, and a and a journey to completion that takes days instead of weeks so you picked up your know-how from working in the movie business but before we we come to that it'd be good to get a sense of how you kind of got here as the founder and ceo of, of purely capital i mean where, where where do you kind of date it back to to where it all began i, I guess perhaps some kind of love of film and 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 then the kind of entrepreneurship angle uh, just happened organically maybe you know, I always loved music before film, actually. Originally, I was very into my music. I was a DJ on the circuit doing mitzvahs and weddings and 50th birthday parties. Uh, and um, had uh, that was where the origins, I think, of my passion of, you know, the, of entertaining came in. And I found myself in New York making music videos for... Um, a company called Department of Film and a very good friend of mine, Nick Quested, who was a music video director in uh, specializing in, in hip hop videos. And I was a young, you know, you know, 19 year old in New York writing music videos and coming up with ideas for, you know, fantastic hip hop artists from T.I. to Diddy um, and really found you know, that connection with music and the storytelling around music videos, telling that three, four minute story around a song and then going and making it, I just fell in love with pictures and the idea that I could come up with some story or an idea for a, that, that kind of resonated with me from the music. And then, you know, you picture it to the label and the artist. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to win the commission within weeks, you're, you're on set making that, that, that video come to life. And, uh, and then within a few months, it's on television on MTV. And that was just amazing. And that's really where my love of telling stories came from. Um, and then from there, it went to long form. So it kind of very much started in short form content. And uh, I mean, you were interacting with the likes of Diddy. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you've seen the film, uh, Get Him to the Greek, where he's kind of uh, being, have, yeah. being incredibly rude and, and kind of abusive in a funny way to his uh, his employees. I'm just wondering how he was in person when you're kind of dealing with these uh, stars. And then here's this kind of like Northwest London uh, boy from, uh, you know, who's 19 years old, uh, basically giving them their ideas for their music videos. Well, I have to tell you, I mean, uh, look, I, I, you know, I came across a whole host of different characters and wonderful, eclectic group of people. Uh, but in the main, I found everyone to be just fun and charming and obviously incredibly driven and professional. Uh, but I actually got my kind of hip hop name, Wayne G, from uh, the late Guru, from DJ Premier and Guru from um, Gangstar. So I had come up with this video idea with Nick Quested around a song of theirs called Skills. 
and the concept was that the whole video was kind of time warped where it would be slow motion and fast but all shot in camera all in real time and it was quite a hard pitch to actually write down and send to the label because you know you got to really visualize the kind of the, the concept so Nick and I had the idea that we go and film it so we found the block in Brooklyn where we wanted to shoot the video and I played guru in the demo video uh, of uh, you know, what we were going to pitch to the label and the band to see if this is what we want to do for you. And so they film, we film on, on film, me playing Guru. I memorize the lyrics and the timings of, of his, his song. And we recorded the whole thing, cut it and edited it together, sent it to them. And they came into um, the studio and we played it them on the big screens. And I remember this, like, you know, it was yesterday. And this is a long, long time ago now, nearly 20 years, I think. So I'm sitting there, we play the thing, and Guru just goes bonkers. He is flipping out, and he's like, yo, 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 Wayne G, Wayne G, I'm going to turn you into a hip-hop star. You know, I'm, and, and that basically created my hip-hop name from there. And it was a wonderful moment. And, and in the end, we got the commission, we shot it, and it was just a fantastic experience. Um, you know, and, you know, sadly, Guru passed away a few years ago, which was, you know, very sad. But it was an amazing a moment in my kind of music video experience of and, and, and really, again, kind of this idea that you can come up with an idea, you know, collaborate with, with Nick and the other people around, the great creators, you know, editors and directors of photography and put a vision that was, starts kind of with an idea in your head and, and onto the page and then, within a month it's on the screen and that to me was something that was just unreal um but yes that was that was the nucleus of what got me into the entertainment world well that's that's quite a story i i have to ask wayne uh, is is the wayne g video on youtube somewhere can, can we find this it is and i actually even i think on my instagram i did a side by side so you can see me and guru doing the same thing and you can decide who does it better i mean i don't want to say anything you're, you know you're at, uh, at what on instagram uh, Wayne G101. Okay, fine. All right. Of course. Hip hop name. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I'm. Uh... So all my friends, all my close friends, and all the, uh, you know, it stuck with me. You know, Wayne G has stuck with me ever since. Um, but uh, it, it came from Guru in that night. Um, the, the the white northwest London Jewish kid in front of these fantastically talented hip hop stars who I'd grown up listening to. And then suddenly find myself in pitching in a room and now, you know, gives me a hip hop name and tells me he's going to turn me into a hip hop star. I have to say that never transpired because I have no ability to rap. Well, uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, rap's loss is, uh, is, is fintech's gain. Uh, but I mean, this, this is when you're 19. So this is kind of pre-university because I saw you went to Leeds University to study media management. Right. So that was that was afterwards you decided, right, I need to get some qualifications to kind of progress in this business. It actually was in the middle. I'd done one year of university, um, and then in that long summer that you get after the first few year of uni, I went to New York, and this is where the experience started in, in the music video world. I had basically got this opportunity to work for Nick because I'd worked previously for his father, John Quested, at a company called Goldcrest Films as a runner. Uh, for my gap year. So before I went traveling in my gap year, I did six, seven months as a runner in a post house. Uh, I ended up going to New York and doing the videos. And after two, three months and having the best time and having experiences 
like the Gangstar uh, story I just told, we uh, he offered me a job full time. So I actually quit uni, spent a year in New York, traveling around the world, making videos and commercials, and then went back to uni, went back to Leeds uh, a year later and finished a degree. Wow. Um, well, it must have been quite an experience. So, so you finish your degree. Uh, Didn't want to come home. <laughs> Didn't want to come home. I can't blame you after after that video. I'm going to have. But to- my mother, my lovely and wonderful, incredible mother, um, was like, "You got to finish a degree," you know. And you know, his, you know, my Jewish mother was like, "You got to, you start it. You got to finish it. You can always go back to this." And she was right. I mean, it was important for me to to go back to Leeds and finish the degree. And actually, I I arrived back at uni after that year and the second year out, if you like with a whole new sense of kind of focus of where I wanted to go in life. And, um, and it was, it kind of drove me through my, <laughs> the rest of my degree. I also I think was helped by the fact that a lot of my friends were now in their third year because I obviously skipped another year. So they were in their finals. They were obviously in a little bit more of a, a focus of, of working and therefore I probably worked a bit harder in my second year than I might have done otherwise and it kind of drove me through and I actually continued to write remotely so I'd write music videos and commercials from Leeds and then if we got a cool video I'd fly and shoot it for a week um, so I went to Morocco and to Thailand uh, basically I'd write really cool videos in amazing locations <laughs> just to get a week away from Leeds to go somewhere hot. Wow um, I guess it beats being a barista or a or working behind the bar in, uh, in the exactly. student union. Uh, so, but when you came out, I mean, this is still music videos and commercials, so it's still short form. But, but when you, you come out, then you decide to focus on, on long form. Is, is, that, is that what happens? It was kind of driven by an industry collapse. So in similar sort of time period, Napster had hit. Video budgets had declined because suddenly CDs and late, you know, the, the, the industry was in flux. This is before the days of Spotify. Uh, and now you look back and think, what do you mean? You know, like people used to buy CDs, you know, it's kind of nuts. But this was a change in an industry that's kind of happening now with the film world. But pre- prior to that, it happened in the music industry. And we were hit as a, as, a, as a music video industry with a similar kind of problem where the labels were having vast problems with illegal downloading and streaming of, of music content and music video budgets that were pretty large for what they were you know hundreds of thousands of dollars for a few minutes of content suddenly were slashed and the team of uh, I work with and the directors of, of Department of Film kind of navigated into long form and they wanted to move into feature films which was a natural progression from short form content and I and I and I began that world and I so I came out of uni a couple of years later with um, a, an offer to join back at Goldquist, but in the film department uh, in acquisitions. And I started to learn about the business of film, the buying and selling of movies. Very different to creating content. It's very much the business of producing, selling and monetizing film assets. And had two great teachers, Stephen Johnson and Tony Murphy, um, as well as John and Nick Quested, and really learn going to Cannes, Toronto, Sundance, the global film markets about the idea of buying and selling content. And so you worked at Goldcrest and then I think you, you went off and, and set up your own production companies uh, and you worked on a number of films with, you know, some famous actors that people, everyone would have heard of and others that, that perhaps they wouldn't. Any films you can tell us about that particularly stick out? Any actors uh, you, you worked with that, um, that kind of, you know, stand out for you as, uh, as, as, you know, 
perhaps events that really helped cement your your role and your status in the industry? Well, look, you know, I'm really fortunate that over the last, you know, 10, 12 years, I've had an amazing career and I've had, um, you know, the fortune to be involved with probably over 130 odd movies. Uh, you know, I've had incredible uh, experiences across many of them because no, no films, no two films are the same. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Foreigner, which is the film you started, uh, you know, you kind of um, introduced me on was a film I, 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 I acquired the rights to a novel called The Chinaman by Stephen Leather you know, and it took about eight, nine years to develop from a book to the release of the film, which was a, a great global box office assess with about 150 million global um, box office. Um, that was a, a labor of love, something that uh, really was like my baby. It was my child, you know, it was with me for nine years of my life for, as an idea and I nurtured it and, uh, you know, meeting you know, Donnie Yen and Andy Lau and Chow Yun-Fat and then eventually getting to uh, Jackie Chan and before that getting David Marconi, the writer of Enemy of the State and Mission Impossibles to adapt the book into a screenplay and getting Martin Campbell, the director of Casino Royale to come on board as the director, you know, an amazing journey uh, with many full starts and exciting financial offers that actually make the film that then in the end just evaporated until eventually SDX, this new studio in America, decided to write a check and it just became the most incredible story and journey. So that's definitely one, but there are a number. Um, you know, uh, another great film I made also with Pierce Brosnan was Final Score with, with Dave Batista, where we blew up West Ham Football Stadium <laughs> with a... Um, you don't support them which was, I don't support them, but Mark Goldberg, who was my partner on the film and a, a West Ham fan, uh, he was, he had the original idea of this movie, flying to LA, he, he called me to say that he had the idea for a movie, Die Hard in a Stadium, and that he thought there was an opportunity to get the old Upton Park prior to uh, Barrett Holmes demolishing it after um, West Ham moved to, you know, the Olympic Stadium. Right. This is of course in East, um, in East London. In East London, well, it was the most unbelievable story, and you'd need another hour of your podcast for me to tell you all the ins and outs of that one. But you, you know, we had a deadline, a ticking clock of a stadium being demolished to build, you know, a lot of flats with a billion-dollar company um, not really interested in our little movie on one side, and you had us with a ticking clock of seven months to go from an idea to production. Um, and the race against time and the excitement and all the all the ups and downs and and nearlys and then ultimately getting it done it was absolutely brilliant um so I would say things like the foreigner final score, strangers, which was another amazing experience of mine, acquiring that movie in four days and financing it in the same week, you know just things that don't happen every day, but making seven you know nine ten million dollars of investment as well as you know going and releasing movies and making 30 40 million at the, at the box office it's just a incredible achievement and anyone who's been involved in film financing knows uh they all take their own every film takes their own 
journey and time frame and challenges but we had some amazing experiences along the way right i guess it's almost like uh, you know each, each new film you do is almost like setting up a new startup so in that respect it kind of uh, set, set, set you up nicely for for your current startup i'm just wondering if any moments stood out with you know jackie chan or pierce brosnan i don't know if you you know try to pick a fight with jackie or something like that that you can tell us that that, that well if i would have done i would have <laughs> lost i can tell you that because he is the most unbelievable fit man and, and, and incredibly um, hard. So if there's any man not to pick a fight with, I would say is Jackie Chan. Um, but no, um, I, I don't have any of those kind of crazy stories. Of course, I have uh, an array of uh, interesting anecdotes of experiences of making movies. But I think the, the, the overarching thing that I think really impacted my life and, and really drove me to purely capital was the... Um, the change in the, the the kind of economics around financing movies that kind of came about in 2017. Well, what I'd experienced in the years prior, and I'd invested probably close to $300 million. So Raisin invested over $300 million in the space, around a billion dollars of production. So a fairly significant investor and producer in independent film, uh, making, as I said, over 120, 30 movies with global distribution so a complete kind of uh, uh, you know a real center point of understanding how the industry was evolving and increasingly in 2017 films were not being licensed by the traditional distributors that you would expect and the Netflixes and Amazons were knocking on the door and it really became a thing in 2017 and 2018 and that was kind of my wake-up call. We'd invested in a couple of movies, and the uh, the, the you know the Netflix of Amazons of the world were buying the rights of these films for more than the cost of the production, which was fantastic because on paper, you make a film for five million and you license it for seven, it's a win. Mm. Um, but then you realise and you see the payment terms that actually that seven's going to come over thirty-six months. And the impact on that profit margin is completely eroded because of the cost of finance to make the movie in the first place. And the default interest on the loans that expire after 15, 18 months and the equity investors and their need for their returns. So you suddenly have this incredible kind of mixed feeling that you've done the job, you've made an asset that's obviously performs you've licensed it for more than it costs to make so in theory everyone should be happy and win and yet because of the um the structure around the payment terms there's been a huge impact on on income and we you know it really affected us and then i started getting inbound calls from producer friends or distributors that uh had similar problems asking whether or not it was something that i could potentially assist with is there a route to helping get out of these long dated incomes earlier and it was kind of like a light bulb moment where i felt wait a second this is the way we're going this is the future you know and you think about again that analogy i talked about with spotify and napster you know the 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 writing was on the wall for the music industry that physical was dying as soon as digital started to take you know uh, the center stage and with the with the birth of spotify and the success now of you know 250 million global subscribers every song available ever made at a click of a button uh, all for 9.99 a month 
it, excuse me, it was an incredible um, transition for an industry, the music industry then. And it was kind of the light bulb moment for me around the film industry. DVD sales were starting to decline. Physical was starting to be eroded. And it still exists. It's not completely dead. I'm not going to suggest that no one ever buys a DVD anymore. But the likelihood that you or any of your listeners got a, you know, got a DVD in the last 12 months, or if they did, compared to the frequency that they ever used to, I would say, even just finding them. I mean, I don't know when you last went to a store and actually saw a DVD on display. They're just very hard to allocate and find anymore. So I saw this coming and I thought, this is where I need to pivot. I need to transition to, if you like, the new world of financing content and and working with in institutional investment grade obligors, big media and tech companies paying you over time, felt like really good positioning for investors um, and working with delivered and completed assets, really good from a risk and credit profile. And so now it was about bundling this in a piece of technology so that it was scalable. And and was it easy to, I mean, you've, you've got the idea, you've obviously got the experience uh, managing productions and producing, you know, more than 100 movies. Uh, was it easy when you decided that this was the way that you were going to go, that you were going to assist these people? Uh, was it easy to raise the funds, uh, to raise the capital that you then need to kind of lend out um, and to, to get purely capital off the ground? No, <laughs> in the long and the short answer, it's not easy. Um, even I think, look, any entrepreneur will tell you, you know, you have an idea, you believe in it, you know that it is going to work. You know, you feel heart on your heart. This is gold. And trying to persuade other people, whether it be lenders, investors to, you know, give you money to buy receivables or just invest in the company in the first place, it takes time. It takes um, proof of concept. It takes skin in the game. It takes lots of different things to actually get investors uh, comfortable. And when you're in a world where you're buying income streams, and when we're buying film and TV and entertainment income streams, we're talking considerable sums of money. Um, you know, assets are licensing for millions of dollars. So it's not like a few hundred grand you need. You need hundreds of millions of dollars. So trying to get tens and hundreds of millions of dollars to acquire uh, receivables is hard. And in the current global climate, in the, you know, kind of mid-pandemic, I don't want to say post-pandemic because we're kind of mid-pandemic era that we're in, the, um, the markets are volatile. Institutions that have access and source of this sorts of capital are incredibly cautious about everything um, even if your particular trade makes complete sense there's a lot of caution there's a lot of you know pause there's a lot of dealing with the issues and the problems that have come out of the last six months mm. and i think um i think myself along with any kind of um you know we're not a lender because we don't lend because we buy receivables but you know we're in that same kind of category any kind of um you know fund a fund or you know a loan to a lender if you like or a loan to a purchaser has its own challenges so how much um, how much did you did you manage how much did you manage to raise did vcs initially just kind of laugh you out the room uh, or was it just it, it took some time but people generally were receptive to to what you're proposing 
So the initial start of the business, I bootstrapped with my family money. Um, so we got the initial kind of proof of concept going over the first six to nine months, very much on a shoestring budget, and uh, just to kind of demonstrate the opportunity. That led me to kind of June 2019, when we did our series or seed round, sorry, seed. So our, 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 we kind of um, opened that out to, again, a small pool of investors. And we did have the fortune of having the Finch Capital, uh, a brilliant VC who are based in London, Netherlands and Singapore, um, who specialize in fintech, um, amongst other things. And I had a relationship with one of the partners from uh, a previous deal from a few years before uh, and reached out to them, told them the new vision and what I was trying to do. And they got on board and they really, really liked it. So they, they kind of led the round and we had a fantastic support from another family office and a couple of other private investors. So that got us our seed round in June 2019, which very much again was to get us to that next hurdle, that next phase, which was getting the institutional credit lines, maybe getting credit insurance, building the origins of the platform so that we can actually, you know, turn us into a fintech company, which is the vision. And that's what we've done since June 2019. So over the last 12 to 18 months. And um, we've just completed, uh, in the process of completing a future fund round, um, which we're fortunate enough to have support from our existing investors uh, that will be matched by government to give us another kind of bridge to a series A, hopefully next year, because the pandemic has had an effect on our business. Well, I, want to ask, yeah, to... I wanted to ask you about that because I assume it's halted yeah. some, it's halted some productions and we know it's pushed back some blockbuster releases like the Tenet and Wonder Woman. Uh, so that's going to be well, Bond's the big one, right? And, and Bond's Bond. the big one that's having a huge impact globally today because I don't know if you've seen and that uh, Regal and Cine, Cine World Cinemas are, are closing their doors, causing thousands of jobs at risk and uh, and hundreds of sites to be closed because of Bond having to push to next spring. Um, right. So yeah, there, there's huge impact globally on on production and on distribution of theatrical content. Um, that actually as an impact on Purely isn't so much because we focus on home entertainment. We're focusing on the streamers and in the main, the streamers don't really care about theatrical. In fact, they don't want you to watch films in the cinema. They want you to watch it on your living room on Netflix um, or Apple or Disney or whatever. So um, actually, uh, if anything, the global climate and the corona pandemic has actually driven subscriber base across the various uh, streamers. It has increased the need for licensing of third-party content because of the lack of available production ability. And that in turn creates more long-dated contracts, which creates a new opportunity for Purely to accelerate. But so if there are, if there are fewer have... productions happening, fewer new productions happening because people can't physically film outside or be working in close proximity with one another presumably there's going to be maybe a dip or a or a, a kind of uh, a, a slowdown uh, in terms of the number of productions that could potentially be uh, customers of yours yes but that will be impactful in the next year or two years because production has a life cycle of at least typically at least 12 months um you know you might be nine to 15 but somewhere around 12 months i.e 
starting a film, forget about the development period, which can be years before that, but actually beginning the journey of starting a movie, i.e. cameras rolling, to getting it finished, deliverable, is typically nine to 12 months. So if you imagine if there's a delay in productions today because of, um, as you say, various uh, restrictions around filming, that's more likely going to impact content in 21, 22. Because everything you're seeing now has been made and pretty much finished probably six, nine, 12 months ago. Um, the likelihood is, I mean, I'm not, you know, that, that's very general. And of course, there's always exceptions to the rule, but you get the idea. Um, but if you take someone like Netflix, over two thirds of their content is licensed. They're not making everything that they, you watch on that channel. They are acquiring it from third parties. And a lot of it is library content. It's content that has already existed in the world. And that still has the same challenges around income flow. So we just did a deal with a fantastic German distributor licensing about 125 titles from their library to seven or six different streamers and broadcasters, Netflix, Disney, Amazon, Sky, RTL. Um, and it's about 5 million euros. All of the titles, I think, bar maybe 10%, were second or third run, i.e. they've already been released. All right. Um, well, one other thing I couldn't help but notice is uh, on, on your LinkedIn profile, you did the blockchain strategy program at Side Business School at the University of Oxford. Uh, I'm just That's curious right. because um, I've been uh, doing work with various fintech conferences and there's a lot of talk still about uh, blockchain. Uh, I, I, have you got any thoughts about putting film assets on blockchains, maybe tokenizing them so they can be bought and sold more easily in a, in a kind of trustable way? Is that something that you're looking to do with Purely Capital? I've always been fascinated by blockchain and, 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 and the whole um, principle of kind of transparency in an opaque world and the film industry is famous for being opaque when it comes to payments and you know basically royalty reports so you know the 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 famous income statements you get on a movie from a studio that's one page long and says you're in the negative uh with no detail and i've always said and thought there's got to be a better way um so back in 2018 while i was really sketching out what purely was going to be i decided to do the course um to really dive deeper and understand more about smart contracts and blockchain technology and what the potential use case could be within the entertainment world and i do think there is an application for it um even if it's just around rights from you know ownership of rights which is a huge issue in ip uh, chain of title, making sure that assets are licensed correctly and have uh, clearance and that along the chain of an asset for many, many years that there is a, a clear chain of title. I think there's great application for blockchain in that around. And I think there is a great application around payments, around income streams uh, and being able to in real time report to a variety of stakeholders around the performance of an asset. But we decided around uh, you know, six, nine months in to focus on the receivables uh, as, as, as purely as a receivable um, platform. Um, I think we're still at the very early stage of adopting anything across an industry that could be uh, applicable now. And I think over time it will become more relevant. 
And there's definitely ideas that we have at Purely to try and implement smart contracts and, and blockchain later on in life. But for the foreseeable future, we're kind of, we parked it a little bit. It's in our thoughts and we're focusing on building the best fit for purpose, you know, end-to-end -end receivables platform. And just very briefly, what, what uh, I mean, how much money have you, have you now raised in terms of, uh, in terms of equity funding, how much have you? How much business have you done uh, so far, and how, how fast are you growing? So we raised uh, our seed round, which was uh, what I mentioned earlier. We did 1.5 million pounds, uh, valuing the business at five and a half million. Um, we have just done this future fund round, which is um, another, uh, you know, just shy of a million uh, injection into the capital as a bridge towards a Series A next year. Um, in terms of uh, facilities. We have facilities in place for over $150 million of, of capital available to us at different pricing. Um, and we've closed over 40 million of receivables to date with a strong pipeline ahead of us. And obviously you're running a business. So, so I mean, what, are you, what does Purely Capital make? Well, maybe you can give me a range because I assume it's not the same for each asset, but is there like a range of a percentage of the, uh, of the amount that you're, that you're um, financing that, that you make i mean we're a low margin high volume business this is not about making vast returns on every deal um if this is not the home run derby you know where you hit it out of the park you hit a box office that generates 100 million and everyone goes home very happy like they've won the lottery this is a low margin high volume play it's a it's skinny fees uh for everyone involved from the lender side and and obviously on purely side um because we want to be competitive, we want to be fair, we want to be incredibly um, supportive to the entertainment industry that we're, we're helping here, and, uh, and 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 therefore we you know we've really squeezed everything to make it incredibly tight, uh, but on the basis that it's a it's a high volume business. So the idea of scaling it through a technology platform and having the computer do 90% of the journey. Uh, really allows us to hopefully target a wide customer base and 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 generate a lot more volume in terms of transactions. But in terms of you know you do a deal for like five million dollars, you're making three percent, five percent, ten percent on on average. Is there like a range that you can tell us? Uh, I'm not going to be pushed to a range, but I would say that three is high. Okay, we'll leave it at that. And of course, founding a startup is is stressful enough in itself you've you've run other businesses and now you're you're running this and found founded this fintech uh, you're also a new father i know you've got kids from a, a previous marriage as well how do you have a work-life balance if at all well funny enough i work from home um and i have as, done, as most people in the world right now probably as, as a, as a, you know kind of forced upon us uh, back in in march and i was we're, you know incredibly lucky that my wife and i had pippa our daughter um, in April in the pandemic. So we had a coronial, um, uh, which had its own kind of incredible stresses and dramas around having a baby in this window where you're not allowed in hospitals. If you're allowed in hospitals, you, you know, you've got time limits and, you know, and then, uh, you know, unfortunately my wife contracted coronavirus in hospital having had the baby. So we had a fantastically dramatic start to Pippa's life. Um, but, you know, I've been home ever since. I work from home. I have fantastic support from, from my wife, Nikki, to uh, 
um, you know, in, in order that I, I'm able to, you know, drive the business forward. Uh, but I also have the incredible blessing that I'm here every day. I get to see Pippa way more than I would have ever seen her had I have, um, you know, been in the old world of going to work, you know, <laughs> in town and flying around the world and doing markets and meetings. Um, and my Dexter and Sloan, my other kids come in and out um, often, most weekends and, and, and stay with us. And it's just, you know, an amazing, I feel very lucky in some respects that I'm able to uh, drive the business forward and work from home in a, in a, in a, with the support of Nikki and, uh, and it, you know, it allows me to, to do all that. But um, it has its strains as well um, because, you know, you're not doing face-to-face -face meetings and I'm a very sociable and face-to-face -face picture i've always enjoyed being in the room with someone and and getting to know them a bit and 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 i think you know we've all had to learn to adapt to zoom pitching and and zoom uh, work work life and uh you know i think uh it has its challenges and trying to get a bank to give you a hundred million dollars on zoom is a, is a is certainly one that i never thought i'd have to experience and just finally wayne uh if there's one thing that helped you, I mean, you talked to us about your story, about your journey, how you got here. I mean, is there one kind of thing or one moment that, that you put, that you can pinpoint as being the reason why you're here? And if that hadn't happened, you, uh, maybe you've just been producing films or as, as many founders in FinTech surprisingly tell me, you know, what drove them the most was uh, their desire to not just be an accountant. No offense to any accountants who are listening, of course. So is there a moment that, that you, would, you would pinpoint? Was it that first uh, music video when you became Wayne G? You know, I don't think it was Wayne G, um, although that obviously created a, a drive to being in the entertainment and film arena um, and kind of meant me leave my DJ hat into, into you know, film and storytelling. Um, I think over my life I've had a number of different things that have spurred things on, but the most recent thing that kind of drove me to, to purely was, you know, probably the death of my father and divorce, um, which was an all-encompassing all start to 2018 um, that really made me refocus on my life. I felt like I was incredibly, you know, the business that I was involved with and the movies that I was making meant I was incredibly distant. I traveled all the time. I was uh, incredibly overworked and uh, felt very just unhealthy from it, both physically and mentally, um, with so many things pulling me outside of day-to-day -day life. And I kind of took stock with the change of the industry, the kind of feeling that we're moving in a different direction, and then the kind of reality I found myself in and decided I want to do something differently. I want to do it, utilize my network, my skill set, my knowledge, and kind of my expertise in this kind of niche industry and apply it in a way that will build a bit of technology that will enable you know, colleagues of mine, competitors of mine, uh, friends from all over the world to access finance in a much more efficient way, but do it in a way that it wasn't all on me. And I think I found back in, you know, the prior years, you know, raising a lot of money and being involved in lots of movies, it's a very personal business to the movie industry and the personal relationships. And having a team of 27 people in two countries, I still get the phone call about everything. Uh, and it got to a point where you think, this isn't manageable. It's no longer scalable. I have no more hours in the day to actually deal with any of this stuff. Um, and that felt like it was a ceiling. I'd hit a ceiling. 
and I was I, I needed to do something about it. And so the the pivot to fintech, the pivot to a technology driven business, um, is nothing to reduce the hard work and dedication of building a business, but being able to manage it in a more um, you know uh, appropriate lifestyle. And you know I'm very fortunate to have met my wife Nikki and have our have our baby and have Dex and Sloan, my other children come and be part of our family and 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 I feel like I have time for everybody. And and I think the pandemic's done this for a lot of people. It's brought us home, right? It's made us center and we actually realize what's important again. And my business is so important to me. I think it's the most brilliant idea and brilliant business, and it's going to be a fantastic success. But my family is important too, and being able to be part of both those things simultaneously is kind of like, uh, you know, the dream. Well, uh, Wayne Godfrey or Wayney G, uh, you know, wish you the best of luck with uh, both of those two important elements uh, of your life, your family, and of course, your uh, your fintech purely capital. Thanks so much. Uh, really appreciate your taking the time to join us on the FinTech podcast. Elliot, thanks for having me and uh, take care. Thank you. Be well. Bye. And of course, this is traditionally the time of year when blockbusters hit the big screen. But for many of us, we'll have to content ourselves with streaming. Either way, keep an eye out for Wayney G and Purely Capital in the credits. So thank you, Wayne Godfrey, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes of the FNTech podcast via our website, f-in-tech.com. And if you've got any comments, suggestions or feedback, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at podfintech or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it for me. We're going to take a bit of time off and be back on January the 7th for more of the best FNTech. Happy holidays, Merry New Year and hope you'll join us again then. Bye bye.